for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. A sports Emmy and Peabody Award-winning member of the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame, Mary Carrillo has commentated on tennis matches for perhaps every network that has covered the sport in the United States in the past four decades, while also hosting Olympic coverage on NBC and serving as a correspondent on HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. While her job varies depending on the show, Mary considers her primary role to always be the same. Tell me a story, you know, make it good. Make me care about who wins or loses this match. What I get to do at the Olympics is tell stories, whether they're profiles or historical stories or cultural stories. I love that stuff. Mary is very aware and appreciative of how much goes into getting any piece of broadcast content on the air. Invariably, the people around me, you know, uh, all those people that uh, I'm so grateful for, they're all working harder than I am. You know, I'm the one whose face is, is on the camera, but they're the ones who have gotten me there. And I, I, I'm very, very respectful of them and grateful to them for making me sound at all logical or, or <laughs> reasonable <laughs> on the air. Because so much of what I know, so much of what I say it comes from all their work. In particular, Mary salutes the research teams because she places a high value on being knowledgeable on any subject she may cover. The only thing that makes me confident on TV is if I really feel like a I know my onions, you know? I know what I'm talking about. I know who these people are. I know what they've been through. While Mary continues to look to tell stories, she recognizes that traditional media outlets are facing a threat in getting the access they need to do that. Frankly, the whole, you know, technology, social media has changed my job in a lot of ways because there are plenty of athletes, Pete, who don't, they want to they want to brand themselves, their agents, their sponsors. They want to brand themselves. They don't need the media the way they used to. They can tell their own story on Instagram, on Twitter, on their blogs, on their, you know, they can just step right over us and tell the story they want to tell. You will want to check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include links to videos that share more context to a few of the topics we discuss. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list. Also, take a moment to follow us on social media if you would, and please leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mary Carrillo, which was recorded on her birthday, March 15th. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I want to go back a couple of years, 2018. You get inducted into the Sports Broadcasting <laughs> Hall of Fame. And, you know, those are tough situations to have to give that, that acceptance speech. Does, you're, you're, you know, wrapping a lot of a career into that one speech. You did not choose to simply rattle off a bunch of thank yous, though. How did you make that <laughs> speech unique for you? Well, it had to be unique because I, I got inducted, Pete, uh, the same year that Bob Costas got in and Jim, Jim Nance got in and uh, Dick Vitale got in. I mean, so I, I honestly, uh, and I was very fortunate because I invited and Billie Jean King accepted with her, along with her partner to be there that night. So uh, I started the speech thanking the research department of NBC Olympics, <laughs> because uh, as you can imagine, Pete, the only sport I'm fluent in is tennis. So 
I have always leaned on on research in other sports, uh, especially the winter sports, because I don't know what the hell most of these people are doing, sliding down mountains and flying down hills and aerials and all that. So that's, it, I, I needed the speech to be, um, I just wanted to, there are so many people in that room. I'm so elderly. It's my 64th birthday, even as we speak. Uh, yes, so uh, uh, as, I, as I begin my 65th revolution around the sun, I, I am more mindful of, uh, of any time in my life, how many people help, you know, how many people are there and, and you know, just sustain all, all, the, all the work and, and enrich it. So yeah, I basically, I thank so many of the people who were in that room on that night. And it was a, it was a very special night. It was cool. And, and at what point did it click in your head that rhyming, would be good to thank the Beagles and Ian Eagle and, you know, to link everything through rhyme in that speech. You have seen my speech. It sounds like um, it will, it will be in the show notes to all our listeners. Please go check it out. It's well worth your time. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I really didn't know what I was going to say. Uh, and we were told to keep it a certain length. So I wanted to get in tight, you know, uh, the best speeches are pretty short, but I, I, I just had nowhere. I, I, a couple of years earlier, Pete, I was the person who inducted Nick Boliteri into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And we were told two minutes, you know, and, then, <laughs> and I, I got pretty close. And that was another rhyming. That was another like crazy, you know, haiku-ish type <laughs> uh, tone poem to, to my friend Nick Boliteri. But then everybody else around me went on for like, someone's still talking at that <laughs> induction ceremony. I mean, Nick went long, everybody, you know, uh, Steve Flink was inducting somebody and he went about half an hour. Like, I, I like speeches that are nice and short. And, and I've always been taught in storytelling, you know, get in late, get out early, you know, make them, make them want more. So all I really did on that night was, yeah, I, I thanked a bunch of people by rhyming their names with something. <laughs> uh, it was a classic moment. You, you <laughs> did say, you, you did shout out the research department. You also said, I especially want to shout out all the invisible pros. And I think yes. you were referring to research there. But it struck me because yes. you were the one getting inducted. And when we tune in, we see you. We right. hear you. But it's really a team sport. Ah, that's the best part of it. Um, and you know that. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm trying to remember a time when I didn't know you. I mean, I don't remember when we met because I feel like Pete Holterman's always been around. When did, how far back do we go? Probably 2004. I worked for USA in 2004 in right. research. I was, I, mean, I was in the research. I was digging up facts about Luxembourg because Jill Mueller was playing Andy Roddick and, and pulling off an upset in the first round of the U.S. Open. And it was, what do we know about Luxembourg? Exactly. Well, that's, but that's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, tell me a story, you know, make it good. Make me care about who wins or loses this match, you know? And, and I, what I get to do at the Olympics is tell stories, whether they're, profiles or historical stories or cultural stories. I love that stuff. Um, and let's face it, Pete, you and I have both watched plenty of matches that got 
unentertaining quickly. So you got to talk around it. You got to talk through it. You got to, although I must say one of the smartest bits of advice I ever got was pretty early on. I was working with Fred Stolle and Cliff Drysdale for ESPN and we were calling some match in Miami. Um, and it was not a good match. So I started pulling all kinds of nonsense out of my keister, you know, like, all right, da, da, da. like you, you end up, you, you, you decide, all right, should I give a tennis lesson? Cause this match is so bad. Or should I tell bizarre stories about their mother or what, you know? And finally we go into a commercial and Fred Stolle, he like claps his arm uh, against my shoulder and says, man, I know you're working hard, but you can't shine shit. <laughs> it's such a Fred Stolle thing to say, isn't it? And from that moment on, I tried not to shine it. I mean, I tried to, <laughs> you take it for what it is, and then you start explaining why you're talking about something else, right? Listen, as a, as a lifelong Milwaukee Brewer fan, I've had the pleasure <laughs> of listening to Bob Eucher there for years. <laughs> They have not always been a good team, so have have heard him make it worth tuning in, even though the game was not worth it at all. That's exactly that's exactly what you what you end up doing, and um, I'm proud that I've been doing it for I don't know about forty years now. And that supporting cast and your role really changed gig to gig, and I find this fascinating because you really have three distinct different roles in all these different sports broadcasting productions that you do. The first one being those live matches, like you were just describing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the tennis you venture out. You've mentioned winter Olympics. I know you've, you've done the luge among other sports. You've done dog shows, a, a kitten bowl, which I don't I did a couple of kitten bowls, my friend. What is a kitten bowl? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was for, that was for the Hallmark Channel. I think I did three or four kitten bowls, including a kitten summer games, like kitten Olympics. Yeah. And in fact, there was a tennis part of that, the kitten Olympics. I was calling a match that featured John McEnmeow, who, of course, lost his temper on the court and had to be spoken to. By Hawkeye, we had a stuffed hawk in the chair. <laughs> I mean, it was a high production quality event. Let me tell you something. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, again, I, I am, I get it. I, I get interested when I had never worked for the Hallmark channel before. Uh, and they needed like a play-by-play -play person to pretend they were seriously calling a football game between a bunch of different cat teams. So how do you say no to that? <laughs> how on earth why on earth would you say you know what that just doesn't sound right for me because that sounds exactly right and i've done a bunch of dog shows i've done the national dog show beverly hills dog show the westminster i love dogs obviously um the akc national dog show um at a certain point i think in one's dotage you just follow the things you 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 say yes to the things that sound either fun or interesting, or to your point, you want to work with people you like and you respect. And I love, I love it in television, which is obviously a very visual medium, but then you got to get the right words. And then you got, you got to get an editor who really knows, or you need a director who really knows how to cut cameras 
I mean, it's such a collaborative event. It's such a, and that's maybe my favorite part of it. And I got to tell you, Pete, and if you listen to my induction speech, you'll know, Billie Jean King, after every show we did uh, at Wimbledon from 1996 to 2000, we did a, we did the daily coverage and then we did, had a late night show that I was a host of, a one hour show. And by the time we ended, it was late at night. <laughs> it was, it was well named. Billy would go down into, you know, first she'd thank everybody in the production truck and then she would go down into tape and into research. And by the end of those two weeks, and she would, the great thing is she would introduce herself. Like no one there knew the hell <laughs> Billy Jean King was. She won 20 majors at Wimbledon alone. And she would say, hi, I'm Billy. I don't know where you found that footage of me and Arthur from 1970, but that was amazing. Like she would, and by the end of the two weeks, she knew these people's names and she, and she knew what they did. I've worked with plenty of people over the years who had no idea who their cameraman was or their sound guy was. Like they didn't know their names. Like didn't know they just had a baby. You know what I mean? Right. So when you get to work with the kind of people I've gotten to work with and to see what they can, you know, what they can do, what they, and how much they can enrich a story you're trying to tell, you know, just by, just by deciding, Hey, if we're going to go back in time, why don't we just bleed out all of the color and turn this into black and white for a moment or two, you know, like that kind of, those kind of ideas and capturing, you know, the sky in a great way or, you know, watching it. it you're right. I love that stuff. It's the, it's, it's the best part I think of television is, is the community around you when you're trying to make some, uh, tell a good story. Those live games is how you got into this business at the end of your playing career. Uh, it was a really well thought out career path. It sounds like for you to pursue this uh, <laughs> broadcast journalism path, right? It was so lucky. I was, <laughs> I was so lucky. I was, I was so lucky. Um, I tell the story with a measure of pride and embarrassment that I got discovered, if you will. Um, I want to point out that there were air quotes, definitely <laughs> signals here on the Zoom call. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for keeping the, the, the listeners in touch with my ridiculousness. <laughs> I was at the 1980 Avon Championships. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. It was at Madison Square Garden. And I was... I, I, on one night, it was during the round robin portion of this of this show. I was like the the stadium who had pretty much emptied out. There was one more match at the Garden, and it was Tracy Austin and Yvonne Gulligan. And Madison Square Garden Network was calling that match, and there was no one else for the Avon PR people to to to, to offer as an interview except me. <laughs> so I so I started. I gave them my name and I explained to them why I was hanging around for this match and why it was going to be a great match between Tracy and Yvonne uh, and how different their styles were. And, and, and it's going to be, you know, just wait, it's going to be a great match. And one of the announcers said to his producer, why don't we just have her up in the booth with us? I mean, she seems really into this. <laughs> so, and, and I'd already had a, a couple of beers. I'd blown off the, I'd blown the suds off a couple. So I wasn't nervous, you know, <laughs> And I sound the same whether I've drunk a couple of beers or not. Anyway, I went up to the booth. They didn't even give me a headset. They just gave me a microphone, you know, one of those Larry King microphones. And, and I just yacked about this match. And it happened to be a great match. And 
it was full of Yvonne's variety and charm and Tracy's relentless teenage ground game. And anyway, Tracy ended up winning at seven, six and a third. So I was up there a while. And as luck would have it to speak to my very uh, cohesive and well-timed career path, a guy who was listening that night, who was a producer at USA Network, he was going to be producing women's tennis for the first time that summer. And he asked me if I felt like calling a couple of matches. And women's tennis became, they showed more and more of it. And then I got to call men's tennis and then I got to do other sports and I'm still somehow around. Still got what something is, to say. <laughs> <laughs> what is your preparation like? I mean, in tennis, it's, you can follow the circuit all year. So you kind of have a sense of who's playing well, but at the right. same time, you, you're finding out late the night before what you're calling the next morning how do you get yourself ready to go into that booth and call a tennis match well once again i thank my research department over and over again <laughs> um and and again you know you get match notes i'm even now i haven't called a, a tennis match uh, in 2021 yet but i get the wta notes i get the atp notes they come in my e email box every day they come in, uh i watch i watch some tennis on tv if i'm not calling it i you know, I text back and forth with a bunch of my friends. I follow quite a few of the players on social media. Um, so tennis for, actually is pretty easy for me to prepare for. Um, and by the way, uh, shout out to the 2021 Tokyo Games this summer, the Olympics. It will be the last chance. It will be the last Olympics for Roger Federer, for Rafa Nadal, for Serena, for Venus, if she gets into the dubs. Who knows how many more Novak Djokovic will play if he wins it this year. I mean, tennis is going to be, I'm lucky enough to be, I'll be in Tokyo calling that. That'll be a hell of an event. I mean, there's going to be a lot on the line, a lot of history. A lot of players are pointing to it. Um, so tennis, again, it's pretty easy for me because I keep up with it pretty well. But so many of the events I cover at the Olympics, I, don't, I only follow them every four years. I don't watch swimming. I think I watched diving like every week. Do you think uh, the, the diving association sends me daily notes? They don't. Bastards. Um, uh, you know what I'm saying? So uh, track and field, I don't cover. And especially, you know, the Summer Olympics has a lot more Americans up on the podium than the Winter Games. The Winter Games is mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, obviously the winter sports, uh, Germans, Austrians, Swiss, Italians. It's harder to cover the sports I don't, I don't cover all the time. And again, you just lean on that research department and you get to, you go to other events before the Olympics. You try to learn as much as possible. And then by the way, you do all that research and then the match starts and it stinks or the match starts and it's not the match you thought it was gonna be at all. Or the match starts and somebody's leg is so wrapped up they can't even move. And then you go in. So if you've studied, if, if you thought this is all going to be about X's and O's and the matchup and all that, and all of a sudden that goes away, that's when you start pulling stuff out of your keister. <laughs> <laughs> and with tennis, you know the sport. You played the sport. You yeah. know the cadence of a tennis match. You've called more tennis matches than I've probably seen in my life. And this is easy pickings for you. How do you learn how to call a new sport. It's one thing to learn those biathletes or the losers, but to figure out like, when do I come in and talk? When do I contribute? Right. How do you learn that part of it? 
Well, yeah, there's a rhythm to every sport, isn't there? The kitten bowl, for instance, that was hell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly, I don't have to be an expert at any of the events I cover beyond my own. I'm usually... I'm usually the host of a studio show or I'm doing features around the athletes or I'm learning who they are, but I'm not the one up in the booth. Like, and, and by the way, Pete, as you know, like some sports play by play is much more important than color, you know, boxing, football. I mean, the, the heavy lifting is done by the play by play announcer. I can do play by play on tennis. I would not feel, and I've had the opportunity to do play by play for other sports. And I just know there's about, 10 billion people who are going to be better at it than me and who want it more. And I'll, I'll step aside. You know, there are, there are sports I've said no to. I got offered pretty early on. I got offered CBS was wanting to know if I wanted to be a college football sideline reporter. I don't follow, I don't follow college football. I mean, not in any important way. And it was going to be 18 straight days on the road. And it was going to be from Thursday to Sunday night, Monday, if I couldn't get a flight back to Naples, Florida. And my kids were little. And yeah, I can do sideline reporting. I've done it. I've done it in other sports. You know, I've been on the bottom of the hill at, at ski events and luge and all that kind of stuff. But I knew that wasn't a good fit for me. And I knew I'd have to do so much research just to feel like I, you know, the only thing that makes me confident on TV is if I really feel like I, I know my onions, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I know who these people are. I know what they've been through. I know, you know, and I just, uh, there are some things I, I, I know I shouldn't be doing and, and I don't do whether it's because I can't be away that long or whatever, you know? So how do you study up for the dog shows? Oh, I love the dog shows. Um, Honestly, we, there's a guy, the guy who is the expert, David Fry, who has been in the dog world forever. Our next dog show isn't uh, till like Easter or uh, it isn't, I don't The Beverly Hills dog show is coming up next. I've been, I get notes from him almost every day. Hey, I have a great idea. And Mary, this feature would be great for you. Did you hear about this dog that <laughs> um, I have uh, if I showed you the library of my house, there's a whole section dedicated to dogs, you know, how to breed them, how to train them, all that. I love that stuff. I mean, I, and, and uh, so, and again, I, I'm usually for dog shows, I'm normally, COVID changed that last year, but I'm normally in the benching area, you know, where all the dogs are getting preened and pruned and fluffed. And, and so, you know, you get to see, what it takes to get all those different breeds out, out in the, out on the, the main floor, you know, and then you learn like what kind of dogs are good, good dogs for children. And these, this, this guy, this dog, if you live in a little apartment, you do not own this breed because he wants to run. He needs a lot of exercise. He eats a lot of food. I, the dog shows are an absolute joy for me. You mentioned hosting at the Olympics and that's a, different deal. You know, when you're calling the life game, you're reacting to what's happening right in front of you. Right. When you're hosting your point guard on that show, you've got to shut up your analyst when you got to get to break and they're, they're going to be in your ear telling you get to break. You know, you're, you're getting a lot of air traffic control going on. You need to present yourself as if you're not getting screamed at. <laughs> How People do you bark tra- at me quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> and we're not talking about the dogs anymore. No. Sorry. That was, that was, too easy. Thank you. Um, 
when it comes to the hosting, yeah. how is that different for you from being in that booth and commenting on that tennis match? Yeah, it is. It's different. It's a different, you're using a different muscle system really. And a lot of it is, it's getting in and out of commercials cleanly, you know, going from one host to another, going for, Oh God, this, we haven't heard from, we brought this guest in and he hasn't said a word yet. Like, how do we get this guy in? And when someone's telling me I got to, I got to hit, you know, I got to hit the bottom of the hour hard, you know, like all that kind of stuff. It's a lot of it is, it's just moving parts and, and you kind of hope that you balance it right. Right. Yeah. And, and there's video and there's, I mean, there have been so often it happens where, and you know, this Pete, like at, at, you're at Wimbledon and you've done this big long feature on this and you've traveled to, you know, Kazakhstan to get to meet their mother and, and there's all this and there's translation that's happening and, and then they lose in the first round and you don't even get a chance to air a piece that you've bled over for weeks I mean that that's the kind of stuff you have to uh, at the end I mean of those kind of days you have to hope that your producer has a really good sense of the moment and has the same value system that you do so the stuff that you think is important is the same stuff that they think is important you know, I've been trying to, and, and I think NBC is going to, I'm going to interview Naomi Osaka for the Tokyo games. Um, and again, uh, the footprint that NBC will have in Tokyo this year will be a lot smaller than it normally is because of the pandemic. I understand, but Naomi Osaka is going to be one of the most famous athletes in Tokyo. I mean, and guess what? So is Roger Federer. He's got a Japanese clothing contract. He's, his billboards will be He's going to be a huge presence there, especially because it'll be his last, you know, and especially because it's two out of three sets. It's not three out of five sets like at the majors. He's actually got a better look at winning gold in, in, in Tokyo than he has, to my mind, winning it a major this year. Right. So, again, you sell your ideas, you, you give all kinds of pitches and you hope it and then you get it and then it, sometimes it just doesn't air. And you, you want to die, You're like, ah, hell. But you have to appreciate that there are so many moving parts and you have to get in and out of the way, you know, try to stop somebody who wants to go on and on, uh, try to bring somebody in who's kind of shy. All that kind of stuff is, that's all part of it. It's again, it's a, it's a totally different job, totally different job. So is that third vertical that you're in, which is those features and oh, going out and doing the storytelling. And yes, you can do them for a Grand Slam tennis production where maybe you're going to get 90 seconds to tell whatever story you have. If you're lucky, you can get maybe four or five minutes on something like a breakfast at Wimbledon from your NBC right. days. During the Olympics, you've probably got a little bit more bandwidth, but then you have a great opportunity with HBO Real Sports to mm -hmm. really get in depth. For a 15-minute real sports piece, how much time is probably spent in the whole process from coming up with the idea to editing, doing the interviews, right. footage, that, you know, all of that? 15 minutes makes air. How much work went into that? It's usually weeks, at least. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a real sports that's coming up next Tuesday on Jason Williams. Remember Jason Williams? The NBA player who had addiction issues and he accidentally killed his driver one night and spent eight years in jail. And, and Jason runs a rehab center 
in Florida and we had visited him for a couple of days. He's a lovely guy and he's doing amazing work. Then we interviewed another NBA player who's been there. And then we had to go back and get Jason again because we wanted to shore up all the storylines that this new interview, one of our interviews had fallen through. And that's always fun. You spend days <laughs> learning about some guy and then he decides, ah, I want to get paid if you want me to talk, you know? Mm -hmm. Why don't you do a documentary? And in the meantime, this guy's a mess. I don't want to, I, I didn't want to talk to him in the first place. You know? So <laughs> you end up spending a lot of time, like we're editing the story that's, that's running next week. And I'm not in the edit, obviously. Uh, and I'm on my way to a different real sports piece tomorrow, but, and we go back and forth with the script and how big a part of this, is this, is this usable or should we, you know, and then we've got the associate producer digging up footage of Jason Williams from his St. John days, even before his NBA days. And we, uh, there's so much, there's so much that goes on to tell a story. And the beauty of real sports is that you get 15 minutes and there are no commercials. So, and there's no music. We don't get to use music to manipulate the audience into feeling a certain way. Mm -hmm. So you better, so you better have very strong characters, and the story has to have either tension or a clear narrative arc. It's got to have turns. It's got to be layered. It's got to be textured. Um, you know, there's all that stuff that goes into it, and I, I love my job uh, at Real Sports. I think it's a, I think it's a very cool show. Um, and it's won plenty of awards, very few from me personally, but the show itself, uh, there's a rigor to it and a discipline to it. And there's nothing better than, than telling a good story, right? There's nothing better. Where does it start? Or how do you guys come up with those ideas of which stories to go pursue? It's interesting. And I, I've come up with some ideas, uh, but a lot of times it's either from the producer or the associate producer or somebody else working on the show. We get people, we get people writing in telling us, Hey, my son. And yeah, that's, that's great lady. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, and, and honestly, Pete, over the years, I have read something in runner's world or the New York times or something. And I will say to them, I'll, I'll give my pitch and I'll say, bah, 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 and we, we should interview this guy and his mother. And the, and then, Joe Persky, our genius executive producer, will say, you know what? That's a better print story than a TV story. It just doesn't translate as well. And invariably, he's right, you know? Um, so we all cook up ideas. And then we all, I, for instance, I had wanted Tennis Channel years ago to do the story about Margaret Cordarina and the fact that this woman, who's a great tennis player, and Serena's still trying to chase her 24 major title record, um, there's a lot of, I mean, this is a woman who's, I mean, her story is fraught because she is an evangelist of note in Australia. And she has very strong ideas about how people should live their lives. Uh, and she is against gay marriage. She's against a lot of rights. And, and she just goes, she's an Old Testament babe, you know. And Tennis Channel didn't want to touch the story. They, you know, we're here to deliver good news. Like that was kind of their line to me. So I took it to real sports and, and I said, I had a great producer, um, Barrett Remack who loves tennis anyway. And we only, we, we spent almost a week in Perth, Australia with Margaret. And she is doing remarkable work with her, with her 
with her ministry. She's got 18 of them around the world. Um, so she does good work. Uh, but she also explains how she feels. And this isn't me. This is Jesus. So we interviewed Margaret and we interviewed Martina Navratilova, who Margaret Court said was a bad role model after she won her ninth woman because she's gay. And we interviewed Billie Jean King. There were three principles in that story, Margaret being the first. And it turned out to be, it turned out to be a really good story, I think. Um, powerful stuff. I mean, it's, so that's the kind of stuff that I like doing, you know. Here's a story idea. I think it's going to be good. I think it's important. It's relevant. It's, it's something no one's ever heard of, you know. Uh, those are the stories I really like. What is your process to prepare to sit down and do these interviews? Again, I, I lean so hard on research. I like doing my own research. If, if something is YouTubeable, I want to, I want to see, I want to see that person. I want to see that event that I've never heard of before. <laughs> I, like, wait, what you spend your life. So you're good at this. Really? <laughs> How many medications are you on? Exactly. No. Um, so that's, that is, and again, that sometimes that becomes the best part, you know, but again, if you only have a certain amount of time, you got to figure out which, which questions to ask and which, and then you have to listen hard. And if they, if they give you somewhere else to go, you take it and then, all right, let's see, you know, that's, I, that wasn't one of my questions. But that's a very interesting answer. So here's another. I mean, a lot of it is just getting to know your characters and getting to figure out where they want to go and where you need to take them. You know, um, Naomi Osaka, we have an interview. We, it sounds like Osaka's people said yes to us interviewing her for Tokyo, but we can't do it. I wish we could do it closer to Tokyo, like before the French and before Wimbledon. And I wish we had more time with her but we don't, and I get it, and that's fair. And if I'm Naomi Osaka's agents, she's got a lot of them, <laughs> I get it. I, and I promise you, it will, you know, we'll be in and out. Then you, have to, then you have to respect their time frame, you know? And if they're the ones who say, oh no, let me just show you my library. Let me show you my horses, then, then it's on them, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be great, you know? But it's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of care that goes into it isn't there? There's a lot of, and look, you know this, you've been on so many ends of this, this game too. You know, you, you have to know where you can go and where you can't, what you can ask for and what you'll get pushed back on. And then if you tell your story and you're critical of something, you got to be ready for that backlash too. And you better be okay with that. Because if you told the story in a way that you feel is honest and authentic and yeah, that's what I meant. Then you live with it. You live with the consequences of it too. You mentioned going onto YouTube to do some of your research. Mm. It, you have to be taking in a lot of different sources of information. Yes. And it sounds complicated too, because you're getting daily emails about the dog show and about the tennis tour while you're working on a Jason Williams piece, but also thinking about this Naomi interview. You, they're not necessarily all different pieces of information about the same thing. Correct. How in the world do you keep everything organized? Are you electronic? Do you have a bunch of notebooks? What's your, your <laughs> tips for this? And are you cramming? Are you the night before? Or is this like weeks in advance? I am, I am cramming. 
<laughs> I'm in a constant state of cram. Uh, <laughs> um, again, there are some there are some things that I feel like uh, this event I'm going to tomorrow in the hills of Tennessee. One of the craziest races you've ever you've never heard of. We already started shooting it last year, and then COVID stopped it. So if you happen to watch this story, I'll be a year older. <laughs> And I'm sure you'll notice the effects of that. <laughs> we interrupt the rest of this story for a pandemic. But, we'll, but God damn it, we're back again because we want to see who the hell wins this crazy race. <laughs> um, I feel very comfortable going into this one because I've already, you know, I've got all my research from a year ago. I know the characters. I know this cockamamie race that they're going to be running. Some things are make you more comfortable than others. That's all there is to it. Um, and again, yeah, the whole idea of community, if you have producers and directors and APs that are there to hold you up, and I mean, that, that makes you think, all right, I think I, could, I think I can tell this story. I think it might be all right. There are lots of people behind the scenes who are part of this. Um, one is a mutual friend of ours, uh, Leo Levin who passed away a couple months ago. Um, and you were very, very close to Leo. And it, it, it strikes me in thinking about this conversation, how emblematic he is of those, oh. as you call them, invisible pros, just his passion and professionalism. Who was Leo and oh. what was his role in your life? It's, uh, Pete, I'm so glad you brought up Dr. Leo Levin, as I used to call him, because I thought I, uh, he was invisible for years on the tour and he was so smart and so diligent. And so I started calling him Dr. Leo Levin when I would mention him on the air, just so people paid more respect to him. <laughs> um, he was a magnificent fellow, really, really smart. He, a lot of things that uh, the tennis world, and by the way, he worked in plenty of other sports as well, golf. He, he, uh, he started out as a statistician and then he worked his way up to, he was designing programs, coding, uh, for all manner of sports. He loved golf. Uh, he loved tennis the most, which I'm lucky about. I got to know him in my early 20s and we became fast friends because he was so smart and very, very funny. And he was on the tour for a long time, working for a whole bunch of different people. Um, and he, um, I mean, we were, he lived up in Jacksonville uh, and I, he succumbed to my house uh, in Naples um, for Thanksgivings, for Christmases, a couple of days before he died suddenly. Uh, he, we were talking on the phone and I, and, you know, I hadn't gotten to see him last year because of the pandemic. And I said, all right, doctor, next, next Thanksgiving for sure. You know, I was, I'm sorry. It was around the time of Christmas. I said, next Christmas, you're going to be here. You know, uh, we'll do it all over again. And then he died. And it was for, as you know, Pete, you knew him well too, knew him long and well. I mean, this is, uh, he was a very special guy. It happens to be my birthday today. If, if Leo Levin were still around, I'd have gotten uh, a box full of his homemade brownies because uh, he used to do that every, every time I had <laughs> a birthday. Um, he was kind. I mean, apart from being so smart and so funny, he, the best part about him was how kind he was. And um I will miss him forever. He taught me so much about tennis. He taught me the difference between uh, forced errors and unforced errors. Uh, he explained not just to me, but to everybody uh, where the important p 
points in sets are and matches are and all that kind of stuff. He was, um, and he loved tennis and ah, I, I, I thought he was a, a great guy. Um, and we used to, we like off the, off when we weren't working, I, I bought an apartment in New York years ago, a tiny little apartment, just slightly bigger than myself. And I wanted Leo to come see it. And then we we're going to go out to dinner in Greenwich village, which is where it is. And, you know, he was a big fellow, as you remember. And back in the day, he used to haul around a huge computer. Remember that crazy ass computer bag he had to schlep mm -hmm. around on. So, and it's a walk-up apartment. And as I said, it's really tiny. This was, it used to be an old uh, horse stable. So it was a crazy apartment and I loved it. And I was very proud of it. And here's Leo Levin schlepping all the way the hell up into my apartment, floor after floor. And he was a sweaty guy too. So by the time he got up there, he was heaving and clammy. And I opened it up and I said, what do you think, doc? <laughs> and he looked around when he could, when his lungs were operating again, he looked around this tiny space and he said, well, what, it lacks in size, it makes up for an inconvenience. <laughs> Which is like the perfect description of my apartment in West Village. <laughs> I, he was that guy. He was, um, if you ever saw me at any of these tennis tournaments, you knew that the guy. But how you remember him? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, in particular, the brownies and um, <laughs> there, there was never really the need for there to be an occasion. He just yeah. would cut. And, and it was incredible that he would show up in Australia with these fresh break brownies. I'm like, Correct. are you breaking into the kitchen in the hotel? Like, how are you or what is this super Tupperware you have that there's still this fresh? I don't understand how you're doing this, uh, but and, and as kind a person as you'll yeah. find. But that passion. You know, yes. and one of the things I heard early working in television is produce your position. And, you know, he did what he did as well yes. as anybody in the world. Yes. And it made everybody around him better. And that's, again, what, what I said earlier about so much of television and all three disciplines from live games to hosting to the features. There are a number of people and everybody has to be on the same page for those things to be successful. And, and invariably the people around me, you know, uh, all those people that uh, I'm so grateful for it, they're all working harder than I am. You know, I'm the one whose face is, is on the camera, but they're the ones who have gotten me there. And I, I, I'm very, very respectful of them and grateful to them for making me sound at all logical or, or <laughs> reasonable <laughs> on the air. Cause so much of what I know so much of what I say is, comes from all their work. You've had the luxury of working with a number of excellent pros on camera as well. Um, mm. You know, Fred and Cliff are Hall of Famers playing wise and broadcast wise in tennis. Um, Bob Costas, you mentioned, I think. Uh, Dick Enberg, I know you worked with. Obviously, Brian mm. Gummel hosting Real Sports. Uh, we could go on and on. Mm. How have you? used working around these people as an education opportunity to learn because you you didn't come into this with some broadcast journalism background you were yeah. plucked out of thin air at madison square garden <laughs> um i didn't even go to college my mom is still waiting for me to go to college. yeah where are you going uh it's not looking good ma 
I got my kids through college. Do, do I get points for that? Uh, <laughs> um, everyone has a different style. Everyone has a, a, a different vibe to them. I, I worked for many Olympics with Bob Costas, who I thought was a tremendous host and an expert interviewer. And again, uh, he didn't cook up all those questions by himself. He had some really good people around him uh, to help set him up. But then he he's just a very, very, I, th- I think he's a terrific interviewer. Um, but then Costas left the Olympics and a couple of Olympics ago, Mike Tirico took over that the hosting role of the, of the Rio games, I think was his, and he was so much more relaxed. And so all the people around him were more relaxed and he, he approached his job differently. I mean, the Olympics changed because there are new events brought in and there's tighter, you know, more commercials and more uh, like we got to get to more stuff. And so he doesn't have the same job as Bob Costas did. Bob just used to do a lot of in-studio interviews and stuff that we don't have time for that anymore. Everything's got to be live, live, you know, um, back in the day, you would hold off events that were going on for prime time. So, you know, or, or like somehow Dick Ebersole, who used to run NBC Olympics, he convinced the Beijing Games in 2008 to, to hold the swimming events at eight o'clock in the morning. So they'd be on at eight o'clock at night, primetime live on NBC. And there were plenty of federations who weren't, and plenty of swimmers who thought that's a terrible thing. Right. <laughs> but it happened. And so, and that, again, it, a lot of it is right season, this, that, who decides what goes where, but. That changes everything. That changes, all right, we gotta go live to this. We gotta, we were watching Equestrian, but we gotta go to badminton because something's happening there. Like, and then you can watch it on so many different platforms. I mean, uh, the pulling off an Olympics event, especially because NBC is trying to do two of them in one year. <laughs> Tokyo is this July, Beijing is next February. Yeah, I don't one know year. How, that's like eight months. <laughs> exactly. I, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of that, you know, just one cog in this amazing machinery, you know, it's, it's something to see. It really is. Within tennis, you've had a bunch of legends to work with as well. You mentioned Billie Jean King. There's also one who you still work with today. And I think it's incredible because you grew up playing against this guy <laughs> and losing how, and losing Consistently. How, how, how long have you known john mcadville well uh, yeah it's john and i grew up in the same little town in queens new york um and so i probably met him for the first time when i was 10 and he was eight and i the first year when people really knew him 1977 wimbledon when he got through qualies he had there he'd been there to play junior wimbledon but he kept getting, he got through the qualities of the main draw and then he got to the semis of the main draw. And all of a sudden, I mean, I'm the only person, I'm the only expert on John McEnroe at Wimbledon that year. <laughs> I've been arguing with him, you know, for most of my life. And people, especially the Brits, they, they just loved how colorful he was and how he just kept, you just flip open your notepad and he's going to fill it up with either his great tennis or his antics or whatever. And, I just remember the, the British writers coming up to me and saying, yes, but it's, it's just marvelous how, and then his feet and his hands and the soft touch. And I, and I would say to them, yeah, he's impressive now. You should have seen him like about two feet ago when he was doing that at like three foot eight, you know, 
that was really something, you know, because John always played like that. He always had that kind of imagination on the court. And yeah, we still work together. We've worked over the years. We've worked together at USA Network, at CBS, at ESPN. We still do the French Open for NBC. Uh, and it is, you know, and we've had, certainly we've had our moments through the years. I started television a lot long before John did. And I was critical of him. And he didn't understand. He understands now Um because he's the same way. He's critical when he's on the air as well. But at the time, he thought I was being a disloyal friend, you know, and he took it personally. And there was, it was fraught. There was definite friction over the years in uh, between us, but there's not anymore. I mean, we're, we're not that close anymore, but we're old friends. And he's an extremely loyal guy, you know. Um, and it's fun. We did the French Open this year. NBC decided not to send us to Paris. So last September was the French Open, a couple of weeks after the U.S. Open. And I was calling it from the Stanford, Connecticut uh, studio with Dan Hicks. And John McEnroe was at his house in Malibu. (laughs) And so obviously the day before, we were trying to make sure that there was no weird feedback and there was no delay between us, between California and Connecticut and, and Paris, you know, and we were checking out all this and it seemed to check out all right. And after the first day that we were on the air, our producer, John McGinnis, walked into the studio afterwards and said, hey guys, that, that went fine, didn't it? That went pretty well. And I looked at him and I said, we're never going back to Paris again, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it worked too well. <laughs> I'm gonna be covering tennis at the Olympics this year. I'll be in Tokyo but I'll be the only one on my team uh, of announcers in Tokyo. The rest of them are gonna be calling out of NBC's Telemundo studios in Miami. And guess what? It'll work great. And don't tell anybody I told you because (laughs) everyone's gonna think we're all in Tokyo. (laughs) Um, COVID has forced changes, some, some making things better, but certainly changing the way a lot of things get done. That's for sure. It, it has changed things. And like just in our sport, Pete, in tennis, you know, linesmen have lost their jobs, you know, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, everything's electronic now, whether you like that or not. And there are pluses and minuses to it. Um, and in the beginning of the pandemic, if you watched the morning news when they're, you know, and there were bad Zoom connections and bad, and that's all gone now. I mean, yeah, I don't even... I don't even feel it anymore that uh, everyone's remote, you know, because it's gotten, the technology has gotten so much better. Um, And I still don't like the cardboard fans. I think that looks really cheesy. It doesn't really work for me, but some people like that. Uh, They're adding artificial clapping and noise at a lot of sporting events now. If it's done right, it's fine. If it's not done right, it's terrible, you know? and, and frankly, the whole, you know, technology, social media has changed my job in a lot of ways because there are plenty of athletes, Pete, who don't, they want to, they want to brand themselves, their agents, their sponsors, they want to brand themselves. They don't need the media the way they used to. They can tell their own story on Instagram, on Twitter, on their blogs, on their, you know, they can just step right over us and tell the story they want to tell. 
And so that's changed things too, right? Um, and everything's instant, you know? So you still want to tell good stories, but a lot of athletes now want to tell their own damn stories, you know? So that hasn't that become interesting? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you, you talked about John not necessarily liking what you said about him and, and earlier, you got to be able to face the, the feedback. Mm-hmm. You are, and it says your bio online, one of the most say? talented and opinionated <laughs> television broadcasters. Well, do you want to start talking politics? I'll show you how opinionated <laughs> I can get. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and the funny thing is, yes, uh, here's the thing, okay? I don't think there's another sport in the world that has so many ex-players up in the booths, right? You know, I mean, so many tennis players want to hang around after they're done. And so many tennis players that I hang around with are legends. They're Grand Slam champions. They're Hall of Famers. I don't have any of those credentials. So if you want me to work for you, it's because you think I've got opinions. You think I've got a a point of view, a sensibility, a mentality about the sport and the athletes and the federations that run it. And I'm going to tell you what I think. Um, That is why I've been working. You know, that's why people hire me. So it's not like I spring something on my bosses. <laughs> like they know what they're getting. And if they, you know, um, and again, there are times I really disagree with the editorial content of the, of the place I'm working or the fact that we're not doing the proper features or the proper segments that we're avoiding Margaret Court or, you know, things like that. And, you know, you have to decide, you know, what, you know, what you can, what you can enjoy, what you can t- like, all right, well, but we're still doing this. So I guess that's, that makes up for it. I mean, I'm, I've got my own point of view. So do you, so does everybody I work with. Um, I might be a little more rigorous <laughs> than others, but again, I assume that's why I got hired in the first place. So the storytelling bug in you, it, what lit the fire? I mean, were you watching news programs as a kid and always kind of a news junkie and drawn to that? Or were you always down at the newspaper stand? I mean, what? Because you, you talked about a lot of these other former players who are in this who are here for the sport. They're not out there doing 15-minute right. commercialist, musicless features for HBO. You're coming at this from a pretty thick journalistic perspective, which isn't necessarily your background. So what triggered that in you? Well, my father, my father is an art director. He was, he's retired now. He's 95 years old. Uh, He's been married 67 years to my 90 year old mother. So we gorillas, we hang around. (laughs) You're going to be stuck with me for a while, Pete. Um, (laughs) um, My dad was an art director at an ad agency, Young and Rubicum for many years. Uh, And he did award-winning campaigns. And he would get the storyboards and he would, he was a, he's a beautiful artist still. And he, most storyboards now they're all computerized, you know, so all the different, all the different pieces of the story are laid out and, you know, the, the text is underneath it and the, and the, you know, the, the vision of what the outline of the ad is going to be is in those little bubbles, the television bubbles. My dad used to do them by hand with watercolors. His clients, Pete, uh, would ask to have his storyboards after the commercials were shot because they were so beautiful. 
So my dad wow. would come home. Oh, he's, he's an amazing little man. He would come home and draw at night. He would he would work at home when he could and draw his storyboards. He would take me on the he would take me to commercials. So I saw how that. There's I'm a little kid. I'm eight years old and I'm watching my dad tell stories. And I think all of the Carrillos um, wanted to be storytellers. You know, my uh, my brother's a novelist. My sister's an actress. My son's an actor. Uh, you know, we all just, I think storytelling is, I mean, from caveman days, people think they've got, this is an important story to tell, you know, <laughs> pyramids, Egyptians, Romans, uh, you know, marble statuary, this guy was here, this guy was a general, this guy, I think the, I think that's the big constant in the history of the world, uh, people telling stories, you know, so I, from a very young age, I love that idea. Of, of telling a good story. Um, yeah. Is it something you're very active in now? I mean, are you reading every newspaper magazine you can come across and seeing how other people are doing the same craft? Yeah, I, I do. I, I keep up. I'm a, I think I'm a news junkie. I think that's fair to say. I think especially last year, I'm so fatigued from the politics of last year because it became a blood sport, you know? Um, it became nasty and every day. And, uh, you know, I would bounce around uh, from MSNBC, which is very left, and I'm a left-hander myself, to CNN, to the other. And I, I mean, I get, I get the New York Times, I get the Washington Post uh, delivered to my phone every, every morning. I get, I get Newsweek, I get, uh, and then I get a bunch of, obvious, obviously I follow tennis from newspapers all over the world. Uh, magazines, but yeah, I I want to know what's going on. I, I want to know what's going on, and um, everything is so it's so accessible now. I mean, it's it's hard to ignore stuff that's going on. I think these days. So yeah, I, I and I judge. I mean, I have favorite writers, favorite podcasters, favorite uh, news people on the air and off. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm pretty involved, but I'm, I'm very, I got very fatigued last year. I think the combination of the pandemic and the politics uh, wore out a lot of people, including me. I'm, I'm throwing in a question here and I don't know that I have this story right, but it, it came to mind when you started talking about the storyboards and kind mm -hmm. of the animation that your, your father mm -hmm. would do, because <clears throat> is there some, moment at Wimbledon where uh, an artist almost caused you to miss a match? Do, have I heard this story correctly? Yes, that was my first ever Wimbledon, 1977. I was, I, it was so crowded. I got called to play a match, you know, my first round match out on court 942. And it's crowded, you know, the first day of Wimbledon, people are all over the outer grounds, especially they're, you know, there's still, there's tennis everywhere. And I'm on my way to get to my court and I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be defaulted because I had no idea it was going to be that crowded. And Charles Schultz, who was a big tennis guy, he has his own court. He had his own court at, at his home in California. I see Charles Schultz going the other way. And I how do who doesn't love peanuts? Who doesn't love Snoopy? You know, who do, and so like an idiot, <laughs> like the idiot I am. I turn around at that moment. I'm playing Wimbledon. I dreamed of Wimbledon, but the, the man who had, there's Charles Schultz going the other way. 
So I turn around, do a U-turn, and I just go up to him. I say, I got to tell, uh, uh, and, and he, he said, oh, thank you very much. And now I have to really race over, and I lost my match, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I lost that particular match, but, um, but I met Charles Schultz. And then he was good friends with uh, Rosie Casals, who also lived out in California, and Billie Jean King. He, he did a lot for women's sports. He was always promoting it in his, in his comic strips. And I got to, I was invited out to meet him and play on his court. And he drew me a, a, a picture of Snoopy uh, with a tennis racket. And, and it says the bubble over Snoopy's head says, okay, Macaron, now you've had it. And I <laughs> that's framed in, in my house. Um, yeah, isn't that funny? Charles Schultz. I, I, you meet a lot of amazing people in this, in this job, you know? Um, yeah, so I hope. Not a great day on the court, but a great day uh, meeting him. I close every episode with what I call the set pieces. And I'm very curious to hear this after talking about some of the podcasts that you mm -hmm. like and everything. So I'll, I'll launch with that question. What are podcasts or newsletters uh, that you're using to stay informed? Uh, in tennis, um, I listen to the British uh, pod called the Tennis Podcast. I don't know if you listen to them. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Roberts, Catherine Whitaker, and David Law. I think that's the best of them. I also listen to No Challenges Remaining. My friends uh, Courtney Nguyen and Ben Rothenberg go deep, especially in women's tennis. Uh, so I listen to those. I listen to uh, Fresh Air, NPR. Um, I, think that's, I think that's one of the best around. Very interesting people. Alan Aldo's got a terrific podcast called um, Clear and Vivid, and he gets great guests. I, I like that a lot. Um, Kara Swisher has become a real favorite of mine uh, for the New York Times. She's got a pod called Sway. And then he, she and a guy named uh, Scott Galloway have another one called Pivot. Do you listen to any of these? Are these uh, all I, uh, The tennis ones I'm familiar with, and I've listened to the Fresh Air, but I've not heard any of these others. So this is yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, God. They're, they're really, I, I really got into pods in a big way, like on a long drive or on a bike ride. Mm -hmm. um, and again, they're getting better and better. They're, they're, they're really terrific, I think. Um, Rachel Matta had a great one last year. I think it was a seven episode one on Spiro Agnew that was fascinating and beautifully constructed, beautifully put together. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely a podcast listener. I know you're not a big social media person. <laughs> you're definitely not a social media producer, but are you consuming it at all? And people, you make sure you, you kind of stay plugged into what they're posting? I am very anti-social, Pete, as you know. Um, I have no, I have no social media presence on Twitter. I was going to say anti-social media, not anti-social. No, I'm anti-social too. I'm anti-social too. And if I could figure out a way to monetize anti-social media, I'd be tempted to jump in there, but then I'd have to be involved and no, the hell with that. Um, yeah, I, I avoid it because I think it's, especially Twitter can get very nasty, but I certainly follow a bunch of people on Twitter. Um, I check my Twitter feed every day um, in terms of tennis, Chris Clary. I think he does a really good job. Uh, Reem Aboulay, uh, Tamani Carroll. See, now you're nodding your head. You probably follow all these same people too. I follow Ben and Courtney. Uh, I follow the Washington Post. I follow, I'm on the New York Times. Uh, yeah, I follow, I follow, a, I do. I'm, if, 
it's a black hole and you don't want to spend too much time on your phone or on your computer. But when I do, that's where I head. What are a couple of books you'd recommend? Oh God, books. Remember books. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> can I ask you first, do you read books like, or do you read them on, on, on your computer? Now I typically go with the Kindle. Do you? Um, and this is a practicality thing because I, like to read i'm usually reading a couple things at once and the last thing i need is more crap in my bag so it's it's the efficiency of having an e-reader i have crap in my bag i'm a crap in my bag person (laughs) i love have you heard of louise penny a canadian writer Mm -hmm. oh she's so good start reading louise penny okay i recommend her to everybody she's got a terrific character it's a sort of a yeah, uh, it's it's a police procedural mystery type thing. I think she's very very good. She's got a bunch of books out. I like her. Um, uh, any novel by the late great Robert Parker, the Spencer series. Leo Levin and I used to go back and forth. We trade Robert B. Parker books all the time because he he loved that guy too. He was he was terrific. So I'd recommend him. Anything by Bill Bryson. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. He, uh, he likes traveling the planet the way I do. Any collection from Red Smith, uh, tra- great New York Times sports writer, any sports collection of A.J. Lieblings, um, any collection of Jim Murray's, the great Californian sports writer. Um, I revisit them all the time. Uh, yeah, those are, those are I, like, um, I like historical novels and I like biographies. I'll read them a lot as well. Figure out how some somebody got somewhere. Uh, that's 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 kind of fun. So those are the books I would I would recommend. But go hard on Louise Penny. You'll love her. Okay. All right. Uh, what would you consider your cheat code or life hack? Okay, you have to explain that to me, what what that is. What is so, a, what is a life hack? Because it sounds like I could use a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and anything that involves cheating, I'm I'm in on that too. It could be as simple as, you know, a, a quadruple espresso uh, before you go on air. Wh- whatever uh, gives you that little edge. Is it a, something that helps you with your cramming, a way of notes? Yeah, or- I get it. I get it. Um, okay. I, well, quadruple espresso sound excellent. Although I usually, <laughs> I usually go, uh, I usually go lattes and I'll drink a lot of them. I'm not afraid to drink a lot of caffeine. Um, and at night, I'm not afraid to drink Prosecco. Uh, or red wine Uh, those are my and if i had a cheat code something i really i have never had a job pete that has required me to wear anything other than sneakers i think that's (laughs) does that count absolutely comfortable comfortable clothing is a big deal right um comfortable clothing is key is absolutely key um especially footwear I always loved, I always admired, not just athletes, but like musicians, like guys who were just wearing jeans and, and sneakers. I mean, who doesn't want that? You know, who doesn't want, so that would probably be, uh, that would probably be my cheat code. Uh, I feel like you missed your calling then. You should be on NPR where you can. Ah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, honestly, and again, big, big shout out to Terry Gross, who I think is the best interviewer around. She's the one who's who hosts Fresh Air. She's amazing. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? 
Um, I've got a lot of them, but I would say, I think the thing that, I think the first time I knew I was good at something or I could be good at something is when I was playing catch with my father. I was a toddler, you know, a couple of years old. But remember those big like rubber, red rubber bouncing balls, you know, the smoothie mm-hmm. balls? I just remember one day he threw, he threw me that ball and I caught it. And I thought it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I think that day I decided, you know what? That's, this is, I wanna do this for the rest of my life is play catch, you know, be a jock, be an athlete, you know, be outside. Spend my time outside doing something that I love. So I think that's about clothes and outside. And and a little bit of caffeine. I mean, come on. <laughs> that's all you really need to know about me. <laughs> my last question. Right, do you keep do you your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? My mom has stolen a lot of my credentials. Mm. And she's taken like a lot of like Olympics credentials and Wimbledon credentials. She's a very selfish old woman. Um <laughs> But I, I like her. I'm fond of her anyway. She's taken some of my, I wish it, I, Ma, I and then she gives them out to like my cousins. Louisa Ambrosio, you know, has got, uh, you know, Jeannie Parada. It looks like, yeah, um, I do keep credentials. The ones that my mom doesn't scalp from me. And I have them in a, in a box, a wooden box uh, up in the closet of my, of my house. And I do, I throw them all in there and they go way the hell back. Uh, mm. And, and I've, I forget some of the things I've covered. And then, holy cow, I was at the wearing blender open in 1989, you know? Like, <laughs> um, and I have to tell you, Pete, the, the coolest thing I ever saw, uh, Mark McCormick, who started IMG, mm-hmm. uh, started the whole business really. He was, he was married, he died, but he was married to a, a good friend of mine, Betsy Nagelson. And I went to their house uh, one time and in their living room, there was this big handmade wooden uh, table, a, like a low slung wooden table with a glass top. And in amongst it was a bunch of Mark's credentials and oh, Betsy's wow. credentials. And Mark, Very of cool. course, Mark's first ever agent. And it was a handshake. His first ever uh, client as an agent, as a sports agent was Arnold Palmer. Uh, and it was a handshake agreement. And on the day that Mark McCormick said to young Arnold Palmer, who hadn't started winning a lot of stuff yet, but he was very charismatic and good looking and had a big, mm-hmm. cool swing. And Mark said, I, I can make you more money off the golf course than you make on the golf course. And, Mar- and, and Arnold Palmer said, ah, what the hell are you talking about? And then he started explaining Anyway, Mark had a bunch of Arnie stuff in there and Jack Nicholas stuff and Wimbledon stuff because his company represented Bjorn Borg and Chris Everton. And then Betsy's stuff, Betsy had her own. You know, Betsy was a good tennis player. She had her, and I think that was the coolest display of credentials I've ever seen. Mine are in a wooden box up in my closet, but <laughs> I could probably put a little more elbow grease into my collection of credentials. But yeah, it means something to me. You keep your credentials, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and the other cool thing in, in with the Olympic Games experience, that whole pin trading. Oh, yeah. That's its own other Oh, world it's crazy. Too. It's, and, and I never saw anyone as, as shameless and shifty and aggressive at pin trading than Katie Couric when she covered the Olympics for NBC. 
Uh, now I thought you were going to say she's Serena an Williams because Serena's Serena's pretty an vicious about it too. She yeah, but no no no. But Katie amateur takes it too. compared to Katie. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh come on. <laughs> she's in diapers compared to she's she's on a tricycle compared to Katie, and I've teased Katie about it because she really because she uh, the Today Show she was always you know she covered a lot of Olympics. She was an animal. I'm telling <laughs> you, I, I was afraid of her. <laughs> I think she's calmed down now, but. At the time, but I never collected pins. Uh, but I've seen the greats, and uh, plenty of respect, and intimidation, and and fright. Yeah, Mary, I really appreciate you taking time to tell your story and to talk about storytelling. Uh, I think uh, it's a it's a great craft, whether it's on a podcast or on HBO with no commercials, or even sprinkled in between points of a really bad tennis match. So thanks for taking the time, <laughs> Pete Holterman. Old friend, it was great talking to you. I hope I see you in person before I die. Hopefully very soon. Yeah. Well, you, you, you said you got like three decades left, so I feel like yeah. you got a good chance. Of seeing All right. Time. All right. We're looking good. <laughs> All right, my friend. Be good. As always, I'm going to suggest you check out the show notes on credentialsonline.com, but in particular, it is worth your time, not only for that Hall of Fame induction speech, but also for snippets of Mary's other work including, most notably, the kitten bowl. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list. We can slide into your inbox whenever we have a new episode to share. Make sure to follow us on social media, at Credentials Only, on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And please do us a favor, leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. Big thanks to my behind-the-scenes guy, Mike Mouche, for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. <laughs>